Hello and welcome to Blockchain Insider. I'm Simon Taylor and I'm joined by my amazing co-host, the one and only Kai Sheffield, head of crypto at Visa. How are you, sir? How are you doing, Kai? I am great. It has been an, an eventful few weeks for the topic today, so I'm excited to get into it. Oh my goodness, hasn't it? In this Insight show, we're going to take a deep dive into central bank digital currencies, also known as CBDCs. We looked at them and contrasted them with stablecoins in a previous episode, but this space moves at the speed of sound, and we wanted to talk specifically about CBDCs. So we're going to revisit that conversation and look at the evolution of the topic CBDC. Uh, and to dive into this, we're joined by some fantastic guests. First up is George Selgin, who is Director for the Center of Monetary and Financial Alternatives at the Cato Institute. George, welcome to the show. How are you doing today, sir? Oh, I'm fine, Simon. Thanks for having me. I should mention I'm ex-director of the CMFA. I, I stepped down in the fall. I'm Director Emeritus now. Oh, well, I, I feel like that sounds even more impressive. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm with that. Thank you so much. That's a good deal. More impressive and less work. <laughs> if only we could all get those. And we're also joined by John Lester, who's a VP of Operations at Onero. Uh, welcome to the show, John. How are you doing? Oh, great to be here. Thanks for having me. Thank you so, so much. Well, to start off, uh, we have a little bit of an announcement. Kai, we're on the topic of CBDCs. What's going on? Yeah, so a few weeks ago, we announced the Visa CBDC payments module in partnership with Consensus. And so this is really a, a testing environment, enables a central bank to experiment issuing a CBDC on the Consensus platform, and then enabling a CBDC wallet to issue a Visa card that lets it spend at any Visa merchant. So our goal has really been, how do we bridge these testing environments with Visa's payment infrastructure and just help central banks think through what are the ways that you can enable acceptance, interoperability with existing payment systems. There's a lot of work to be done here. So we're really excited to work with a number of them on this. Oh my goodness. There's so much happening. The space really does move at the speed of sound and there's evidence. So we're going to do a quick recap. Kai, I'm going to come to you first. Let's define CBDCs. Set out your definition, and then maybe we can go around the horn and see if everybody agrees or disagrees. Yeah, so I always like to start this topic with the question I get from people of, you know, aren't dollars already digital today? Like, what's actually new with CBDC? And so it turns out, you know, there are actually multiple forms of fiat money in the economy today. And so first, there's what's called central bank money. And central bank money takes two forms. You know, there's physical currency, you know, cash, widely available for use by individuals and businesses. And then there are reserves that are held by eligible financial institutions at the central bank. And so cash is physical. These reserves are electronic or digital. And CBDC is this generic term for a third form of central bank money that is digital, but a direct liability of a central bank and accessible to individuals, businesses, and others. And so a lot of people ask, like, what about the digital money that's in my bank account today? And that's a separate form, which is referred to as commercial bank money, deposits that are most commonly used by the public, but it's not a liability of the central bank. It's a liability of your individual bank, although backstopped by federal deposit insurance. So George, let me throw to you. You're the economist here. Correct me if I'm wrong on any of that. And why does this all matter? these different forms of money that are in the economy. Well, uh, you're not wrong about it, first of all. The distinguishing feature of 
central bank digital currency is that uh, it's fiat currency that people can use directly the same way they can use paper Federal Reserve notes, for example, but it's digital. And uh, that means that it includes just ordinary accounts that people might open with the Fed, which of course most people cannot yet, but some are proposing that everybody should be able to have an account with the Fed. That's one version. The other is a little bit fancier version that's uh, distributed ledger-based, token-based, if you if you will. And uh, the Fed could get into that business, uh, supplying, uh, as it were, <laughs> a, a kind of stablecoin that's really not a stablecoin, but its own token-based fiat dollar liability. So that's all correct. And the big question really is, uh, what can central bank digital currency do that either existing payment options or potential private ones can't. That's the big policy question. And, uh, and of course, uh, we see a great deal of momentum of people pushing around the world for their central banks to, uh, to get involved in the digital currency game. And some banks have, some central banks. And then the big question is, should they all be doing this or should they be thinking harder about whether it's a good idea or not? Yeah, lots to get into. And I think it's a great sort of um, perspective to take is why would a central bank want to do it? And it needs a lot of thought. But we know, as you alluded to, you know, the Monetary Authority of Singapore, the Ricks Bank and many others have done lots of research here. Um, there are some smaller nations as well that have begun to issue central bank digital currency, but perhaps more, none more so than China with its digital currency electronic payment initiative, uh, which recent um, press releases have suggested has more than 240 million users and 10 million merchants live on the platform and $8.3 billion in transactions. And if you look at it, there's more than 87 countries currently, quote, exploring a CBDC. Uh, George, to that point, how much do you think first mover, somebody moving in this space has triggered this versus has there been sort of a global awakening around the potential benefits and pitfalls here? I think it's a, a little bit of both, Simon. Uh, there's no question, first of all, that this is a very faddish development. <laughs> that is what I mean by that is it's really popular and the pressure is on all central banks to get involved with it. Whether it's a good idea or not, the pressure is there. But there is also this first mover thing, which is part of that story that uh, you have many, many people say, saying, well, China's done it, and now some other countries are doing it. Well, we, the United States, I mean, uh, uh, pardon me if I'm U US-centric in my comments, but we, we ought to also be doing that or else we'll fall behind. I'd like to just say in response to that argument that lots of central banks are not doing it. Some seem not ha to have any intention of doing it. Well, maybe we shouldn't fall behind them. <laughs> maybe, maybe they've got the right idea. So the fact that some central banks have done, uh, have moved into central bank digital currency and that others are contemplating it is neither here nor there, in my opinion. The question is whether uh, that is the right route uh, to take, 
or whether there's some alternatives that actually make more sense. That is, alternative ways to supply, to, to gain rather the same benefits that are supposed to come from central bank digital currency without having central banks actually enter into that business. Yeah. And then, John, I'd love your perspective on this of, you know, how do you think about, you know, potential benefits, you know, versus risks and challenges of any CBDC and, and maybe compare between giving everyone an account at the central bank, you know, why might a central bank not want to do that or some challenges it could create? And the more popular model we hear about of this two-tier, having the central bank create a token, but then distribute it through the private sector? What's your perspective? Yeah, well, that's that's a good question. Well, well you know, my background is having been involved in, um, you know, in Bitcoin back in 2013 and having seen Bitcoin inspire all these different types of digital currencies and, and, and tokens. And fundamentally, I'm a, I'm a product guy. So I always try to think about, from the end user's perspective, uh, what's the benefit to them? And, you know, the, the, the thing that's fascinating about CBDCs is it gives central banks the ability to create programmable money that is also transparent in terms of how it operates. So there's no question about how it functions. You can actually be very transparent because everything is on a blockchain. You know, the big challenge is at the end user, right? You know, how easy is it to use? You know, and you look at things like... Um, you know, trying to get like what's going on in El Salvador, entire countries adopting some type of a Bitcoin standard. At the end of the day, it comes down to, you know, as a user, is this is this helpful to me and is it easy to use? So, you know, my perspective around CBDCs is really looking for the opportunities that banks and institutions and countries have to create currencies that are uh, programmable and adaptive to market conditions that, at the end of the day, uh, give you know very specific benefits to users, and I think the same way you know obviously you know credit cards are incredibly useful and work really well. You know, those same kinds of those same kinds of product design decisions have to be uh, carefully thought through. Yeah, John, I think that's a great point. There are so many tensions there. I mean, when you talk about programmable money from a consumer perspective, it sounds like a great idea to have something where my sales tax is automatically calculated and deducted as a merchant or anything, you know, sort of uh, my social welfare is immediately delivered via this thing in, in real time. Uh, but then the risk of that is it goes the other way, which is my social welfare now has strings attached and I can't use this to do X, Y, or Z. And now am I limiting the freedom of society? And and so this is is, is kind of the tension where, you know, sort of culture and politics start to, to play into that a little bit. So there's definitely some benefits around potentially um, user experience and maybe uh, the, the Fed paper, which we'll come on to later, also talked about potential cross-border payments being simpler and an efficient and cheaper payment system for, for all involved that could lead to financial inclusion. So there's there's a bunch of those things there that start to start to speak. But you said the B word as well, Bitcoin. Um, George, I'm I'm interested in how much of this is, you know, the banking industry wanting its own thing to compete with the fear of cryptocurrencies after everything that happened with DM and Facebook and uh, and everything around that? Do you think fear is a motivator here? and Or do you think that those benefits are also a big part of the picture? Well, I, I think it's, it's both. We should allow that uh, 
bankers, established bankers uh, uh, may fear the benefits. <laughs> they don't necessarily have to fear the bad things that can go wrong. They can fear that rival payments media can eat into their market share. And, uh, and I believe that that is exactly what most of them fear most. They're not, they're not worried about Diem taking over the world. Of course, nobody should be now. But they are worried that non-bank suppliers of stablecoins, US dollar here in the United States, of course, uh, that they could, in fact, uh, give the established banks uh, a run for their money, so to speak, if they are able to uh, capture some share of the demand for US dollar transactions media. So I think it's a combination of uh, a fear of competition and also, uh, to some extent, fear that stable coins and other digital private currencies could indeed pose some real dangers to consumers. It's important for us to separate the two kinds of fears because one is anti-consumer and the other one isn't. And to ask ourselves uh, whether in fact uh, we can have uh, private digital currencies that uh, compete with existing stuff, whether it's from commercial banks or from the Fed, and do so safely. If if we can, then we should. And then the question remains, uh, should the central bank digital currency also be part of that mix? And that's a separate question. That's an interesting point, George. And, and in fact, Kai, we want us to talk about some of the big developments. It might be worth just sort of talking through the Fed paper and some of the the highlights of what it said, because uh, George was sort of alluding there to the concept of narrow banking. It would be really good to get get a recap on, on that at some point, Kai, do you think? Yeah, so, so just in, in the past you know, week, I guess, the, the Fed you know, published a, a very long anticipated uh, document of their perspective you know, on retail CBDC. And, and first, you know, they didn't commit to launching a retail CBDC. It's very clear the beginning, it was the beginning of the conversation. And they really laid out you know, some potential advantages that they saw, uh, which was you know, a safe digital payment option for households, faster cross-border payments, uh, potential to use it to collect taxes, maintaining the international role of the dollar, among others. And they also laid out you know, a number of, of risks and considerations around you know, potential disintermediation of, of banks, you know, privacy versus you know, AML, and uh, so it was very much just a, a cost versus benefits you know, analysis, you know, to start the conversation. Uh, but I'm curious, may, maybe John, if, if what your reaction was you know, to this you know, initial paper and the discussion you know, that the Fed is, is starting to drive. And it, it seemed like the tone of the paper was very much, you know, this is not you know, a foregone conclusion that we have to do something here and we have to do it immediately. So what were your thoughts on, on the general you know, tone of it? Well, it was very cautious. And I think, you know, uh, my background actually is in healthcare. In a previous life, I was, I worked in the neuro neurology service at Mass General. And, you know, it's above all, do no harm. So I think there's a lot of uh, wanting to, you know, this, there's this tension between wanting to take advantage of these new technologies that provide the ability to create innovative new really products for consumer and for companies and organizations and countries, while at the same time not breaking things. Because if you break things financially, then everything falls apart. So it's um, 
good to see the conversation and the, 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 and the investigation starting. Again, I think when I hear fear, it's interesting because when when you think of uh, fear of competition, at the end of the day, competition is great for the end user. It's great for the consumer. That, so, so you know, but there's naturally fear that, you know, you may lose your grip on something. And in the financial world, you know, losing your grip means things could spin out of control and everything could fall apart. So there's this really interesting dynamic tension. I think at the end of the day, though, the more things are, are, are clarified also around language, because language is, you know, people are using the same words to mean different things sometimes in this space and being very clear about, you know, what is a CBDC, what is a stable coin, um, you know, at the end of the day, there just needs to be more clarity and, and, and mapping of the territory here. Yeah. So speaking of, of language, there was a, a term in there that the Fed mentioned a CBDC would have to be intermediated. Uh, so George, you wrote a fantastic blog post around you know an intermediated CBDC versus a synthetic CBDC. Kind of what does that mean? What do they mean when they say intermediated? And what would that look like if they were to move forward you know, under that model? Well, <laughs> first of all, these terms uh, are not really very good terms. Neither of them means exactly what it sounds like it means. <laughs> Uh, the Fed's intermediated, uh, what it calls intermediated central bank digital currency, is not intermediated by private banks. That's what it sounds like. It's not that the private banks are borrowing from their depositors and investing in central bank digital liabilities. All that the private sector banks and other non-bank payment uh, firms that could be involved in this do, according to the Fed's plan, is they, they manage the individual Federal Reserve liability accounts owned by individuals. So this is an account-based plan. You and I and uh, everybody could have an account at the Fed and uh, then uh, instead of going to some Federal Reserve uh, retail uh, branch, none of which exist yet, we would go to a private bank or private payment firm or we would, we would communicate with it online. And uh, that firm would manage our Federal Reserve account for us. They, but we would be holding Federal Reserve digital currency. So it's a true central bank digital currency. The bank that's in between the intermediary, it's not its own liabilities that we'd be holding. It's just managing the Fed's liabilities for us. And it's going to, we give our payment instructions, we make our deposits, etc. there. Now, I, I've said that this is more like a custodial relationship than an intermediated uh, one. Of course, that also gets us into terminological issues. But it's a true central bank digital currency with private institutions providing the upfront uh, interface with the public. What uh, some people call synthetic central bank digital currency. This comes from a proposal originally made by an economist from the BIS, is actually not a central bank digital currency at all. <laughs> it's private digital currency that is really intermediated. Uh, it's, a, it's a private inter digital currency that's fully backed by central bank liabilities. So that is would be better called intermediated, but too late. And what happens there is that you have a private stablecoin issuer that could be a bank, but it doesn't have to be. And its stablecoins are 100% backed by central bank uh, uh, balances. 
Uh, we'd call them reserves if these were banks, but if they're not banks, maybe we shouldn't. But their central bank balance liability back to 100%. Now there, the customer of the stablecoin issuer holds a liability against that issuer, holds a private digital currency, which is invested in central bank liabilities. And in that sense, it's truly intermediated by the private issuer. Uh, and so these terms are really, really <laughs> unfortunate terms, because in each case, they kind of mean something very different than what they sound like. But uh, in any event, these are different plans. Superficially, they look kind of alike. In particular, for every dollar of digital currency out there in either plan, even though in one case the digital currency is private stuff, in the other it's central bank digital currency, there is one dollar of fiat central bank liability that's backing, that's behind it. And so in that sense, they're the same. In other respects, though, I think as I wrote in the post, you kindly referred to, Kai. The, the, uh, in other respects, though, these plans are very, very different, particularly in their implications for competition and ongoing financial inter uh, innovation. And that's where that difference, I think, is all important. I want to come back to that, but we do need to take a quick pause here whilst we hear from our sponsors, and we'll be back very, very shortly. This episode is brought to you by Visa, one of the world's leaders in digital payments. Crypto has opened up a new world of possibility, and Visa is helping everyone take part. Visa enables commerce across their network and crypto networks through solutions like Fintech FastTrack, a quick and easy way for crypto innovators to issue payment credentials. Join us in this new money movement. Learn more at visa.com forward slash crypto. Here at 11FS, we're still working hard to build the next generation of financial services, and our team is growing quickly. So we're looking for a bunch of new 11s to join us. If you or somebody you know are up for a challenge and fancy working for one of Flex's most flexible companies, come check out our open roles. We have roles in growth, product, sales, talent, and more. You'll find all the details at 11fs.com forward slash careers. That's 11fs.com forward slash careers. I was just going to come to you on that point, actually, George, because in the Fed paper, they talk about some of the key considerations being, you know, narrow banking and the role of credit. So it may be worth, um, some listeners will be familiar with the concept of narrow banking, but could you just unpack and explain narrow banking and why that may or may not be desirable if you're a central bank, um, given, given your role in the economy? So narrow banking is a concept that goes back way before any discussions of digital currency, way before Bitcoin and all that. And uh, in order to explain it, it's perhaps best to explain briefly the kind of banking that we, we are all used to that's conventional, which is fractional reserve banking. Now, that phrase connotes many different things, but for our purposes, what's significant is the most straightforward meaning, which is that in, in a conventional banking system, the money the banks create, in this case today, digital money, but in the old days, circulating paper banknotes, but it's backed partially or fractionally with actual reserves of basic money, which today would be fiat, right? Credits at the Fed. 
And the rest of it is backed with bank loans and other securities and that sort of thing. So the fiat money backing, true fiat money backing is partial or fractional. And uh, it's owing to this uh, partial backing that uh, ordinary banks and bank money can be subject to runs and panics and failures, etc. It's risky, in other words. And that, is, that risk is the normal rationale given for deposit insurance, rightly or wrongly. I personally think that the argument for deposit insurance is, is quite exaggerated uh, and uh, that history shows it. Anyway, that's your fractional stuff. That's conventional. Narrow banking is an alternative to deposit insurance, where people say, well, instead of having uh, deposit insurance to convince people that their bank-issued money, digital or otherwise, is safe, let's just have banks that aren't fractional reserve banks, where their dollars, their deposits, for example, are 100% backed by reserves of central bank money. Now, if that's true, there's no risk. There's no, there's no uh, interest rate risk. There's no default risk. There's no credit risk. So we don't need deposit insurance. These are substitutes. Now, that's very important because we can make the same point about digital, private digital currencies, right? Now, this doesn't have so much to do with the Fed's paper, but the earlier president's working group paper on private stablecoins, they said, well, they should only be insured and issued by insured banks. Well, if you believe the narrow banking arguments for that alternative generally, then uh, you should believe, and I do believe, that an alternative to insured stablecoins that may or may not be backed by fully by reserves and usually presumably would not be, an alternative is to have narrow stablecoins that aren't insured but are fully backed by central bank money. And I think that alternative should be allowed, and that's why I'm against the president's working group recommendation. That was fascinating, George. So it feels like there, there's this distinction of, it's almost like this spectrum of, you have commercial bank deposits backed by FDIC on one side, you have a full central bank liability on the other side, but then there's room across it with things like narrow banks that are fully backed by central bank reserves that could be used as a part of this model. But one other thing that stood out for me in the Fed paper was they mentioned that they saw CBDC as the potential to give entrepreneurs a platform by which to create new financial products and services. And so maybe John, starting with you, like who is the end customer for CBDC? Is it a consumer or is it a developer? And what does it mean to build a CBDC that has a developer platform with innovation that's built on top of it. Well, I think it's 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 both, right? It, it, it's all about building platforms, right? You know, the classic example is to just look at the iPhone. It was all about building the platform and the ecosystem for that to explode. And with digital currencies of any kind, it's also all about building platforms. I mean, if you, if you look at a lot of the success in with different open source projects in the crypto space. It's it's when you have a vibrant developer community and incentives for people to innovate and create products very rapidly and try them out with the end user and see this works, this works, you want this, you want that, and be highly adaptive to, to changes in consumer needs, right? So it's about building platforms that are highly adaptive and you know the CBD space is in the same realm in my mind. You know, you, it's, it's really, and you want to create 
a vibrant ecosystem where you are building a platform to rapidly iterate on your product and to show, again, you have to show the end user that this benefits them, right? Because at the end of the day, they're going to decide. And that's one of the interesting things that we're, we're in right now is, you know, people have choices in what they want to use as money. <laughs> that's, you know, that changes the game. So you have to outcompete all the other choices for the end user's you know, time and effort and usage. And then George, within you, you outlined this distinction of intermediated versus synthetic. It sounded like intermediated in the Fed's definition would basically be one platform that the Fed would offer. They would operate the rails and the private sector builds on top of it versus synthetic being, you know, competitive ecosystem of potentially many different platforms that the private sector could operate. Like, how do you think about those two models with you know, innovation and entrepreneurship, you know, opportunities on top of that. I think that we need to distinguish between platforms for digital currency and digital currencies themselves. The Fed's proposal is that it would issue a digital currency. That's different from providing a platform. The Fed does have a platform. It's the same platform it has for ordinary bank deposits. It consists of the Fed's books and access to them and the clearing and settlement services, wholesale settlement services that the Fed provides, that banks can settle on the Fed's books and end with a fiat money system. That's the only way to have final settlement. That is, you have to access the central bank's liabilities one way or the other to have final settlement of fiat money payments of any kind. Now, the only now you could do that with suitcases full of Federal Reserve notes and delivering them for final payment, but in general, we don't consider that uh, uh, an efficient alternative. So, this gets to my point that uh, if the Fed is only interested in providing a platform. It doesn't have to issue central bank digital currency at all. It does have to allow access to private potential and actu uh, uh, digital currency suppliers to its balance sheet. It has to give accounts to them. It has to give master accounts to them and not just to banks. And then you can have narrow stablecoin issuers and you can have uh, not narrow but insured bank stablecoin issuers and they can all innovate. Now, there is a question of interoperability, of course, uh, but the Fed can impose rules, standards uh, that uh, if you want to have access to the Fed and issue a stablecoin, here are some of the things you need to conform to so you, your stablecoin can be compatible with others and per, with ordinary bank deposits, and they can all travel on the same rails, and et cetera, et cetera. And so I, I think it's very important to distinguish the platform and providing a platform that many can make use of, with and which is something I think the Fed should do with uh, central banks actually competing directly in the digital currency market, which is something I think is unnecessary. And it's unnecessary because I don't think their digital currencies can do anything that conceivably can't be done by the private stuff. And it's undesirable because central banks cannot compete fair and square with private institutions. They can try, but it's virtually impossible. I'll just mention one fact that ought to get people's minds thinking about this properly. 
Central banks, when they enter a product market, never leave. They never fail. They never, they never say, oh, we're no good at this. We're not making money. We've lost out to better people in the private market. More likely, they'll clobber the private market alternatives with regulations or whatever they have to do to stay in whatever they've gotten themselves into. Now, that should give everyone pause. That's okay for China. We expect that sort of thing from the Chinese government. We shouldn't be so keen to do it here. Words to the wise, without question. And I think that Chinese example is is a really good one as you think about why uh, is China doing it, where um, sort of uh, Alipay and uh, WeChat Pay has gained significant market share. Uh, and so is that something that they want and what's what's desirable? Um, and John, you've mentioned a couple of times what is desirable to the consumer. If the consumer is caring more about privacy, uh, do you think that this, uh, this is going to be a trend that is widely accepted by the public to have this new form of digital money that is in theory traceable um, by the central bank. How desirable is something like that from a consumer perspective, do you suspect? Well, it, it all comes down to the benefits, right? If, if, if you can articulate to the consumer that you are asking for this information in exchange for this, then the the, the, the exchange is, is very clear to the consumer and they can make an educated decision. So I think it, it needs to be very clear, the AML and KYC issues, it has to be very clear that you know we're doing this so that we can recover from these bad situations and at the end of the day make you feel safer using your money. So you just, you just have to articulate it because the consumer market is becoming very sensitized to the whole idea that you know you have a lot of information on me and what do I get out of that? What do I get out of that? It seems like the only thing I get out of that is I hear in the news that some database has been hacked and all that information is now on the internet for free. You know, it, 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 people lose their privacy all the time because of, of infosec issues like that. So it, it's really need to be very clear about what do you, what is the benefit to the end user? And, and I think at the end of the day, a lot of users, you know, are, will, will happily do things like that if it helps protect them in terms of their, uh, their transactions and be able to recover from uh, when, when things go wrong in transactions. And, and if, it feels like at this point in the broader conversation, there hasn't really been a killer use case or what's the killer app of why a consumer would choose to pay with CBDC versus with an existing bank deposit or worth uh, with a non-bank you know, payment platform. Uh, and I think the other thing that's kind of missing from the conversation is kind of more analysis around the underlying payment rails. I think there's a lot of focus on like the currency and how is the currency backed but what rails is it transacted over? And Simon, would love your thoughts on this of just starting with what's interesting about stablecoins is there's this bottom-up competition of you know eight different blockchains that stablecoins are running on, each with their own programming languages, their own features, optimized for different use cases. And so there's just this massive experimentation, but it's not saying let's build one rail that all digital money and tokens are gonna flow over. And then you have on the central bank side, really interesting, you know, the paper published on open CBDC you know, by MIT and the Boston Fed, they introduced the concept of what a technical network could look like, but it still seems a little confusing to me that it's very hard to design one network with all the use cases of digital money that could exist in the economy versus having digital money flow towards the networks that economic activity is already running on. 
And that's kind of the story that stable coins have been of they didn't start there and then activity came to them. It was there was already people using these wallets, using this infrastructure, and stable coins then brought fiat onto those networks. So I'm curious, Simon, from the fintech side, like how do you think about payment rails in this context of CBDC? Payment rails never go away, but new ones come along. Uh, so what you see is that the uh, the likes of uh, the the real time payment system uh, is is finally you know we're talking about Fed now. We've been talking about it for some time, uh, but ACH and Fedwire have been around for an awful long time. Um, it, the card networks have been there for a while. Swift has been there for a while. They don't really go away. Um, they they get upgraded, they change, but they're probably unlikely to to fully change. Uh, or if they do, you know, FedNow would be an upgrade to FedWire, but there's going to be a 10, 15, 20 year overlap between those before you turn something off. Like turning off a payment system is incredibly difficult. So those things will stay as, as, as a number one. And then number two, the question becomes, how do I achieve the benefits of a more efficient, fairer, inclusive financial system that preserves the role of the dollar on the international stage potentially, um, but that also means that uh, consumers can, we can solve some of the consumer problems and cost problems in society. And there are a few questions that come to my mind, who should build it and how effectively will they build it? Uh, you could argue, as, as some have, that the central bank should build it. But given they're already building Fed now, do they need to build new technology infrastructure uh, to for any of the models we've talked about, whether it's private stable coins, whether it's synthetic CBDC, whether it's intermediated, does it need new infrastructure? Because the assumption is, oh, well, you need to do something with blockchains and DLTs. I don't know that you do. So do we need a new rail for that stuff? No, I don't think we do. Whereas the birth of Visa itself comes along because cards now exist and we need to solve for this use case in real time. You want to walk into a store, you get Mike Stripe. And the US government sort of co-opts this and, and regulates it into legitimacy as uh, you know, and kind of gives uh, the role of the card schemes this this amazing position in, in the in the market as being this standard setting organization that helps maintain uh, high levels of consumer protection. That sort of history that the US has as co-opting the private sector development is really, really interesting and a really interesting model. So could you not expect to see the same with private stablecoins? I think we might. There are so many, as you say, so many competing rails and, and competing blockchains and competing ways of doing CBDCs. But why not let the private sector get on with that, figure out its, its format wars, VHS, Betamax, whatever metaphor that you want to throw on there, and when it does, have a comprehensive and thoughtful regulatory framework that's somewhat like Section 230 was to the internet. How do I enable this amazing new innovation whilst being thoughtful about the risks that I'm trying to prevent in the market, um, like, uh, like anti-money laundering, but also like uh, consumer privacy, like uh, potentially the role of credit in the market? So there's a new rail coming um, whether who builds it and what benefits will come to consumers. Uh, if I'm in fintech, this might just be another API I start to use. And is it one rail or many rails? I think that that's the other interesting thing that with the number of use cases, digital money can go in. Maybe George, I'd love your, your comments and thoughts on that, as well as what's preventing this from happening? And in, in your blog post, you referenced, you know, there was a critique from the BIS, you know, on synthetic CBDC. Would love to hear your perspective on 
you know, why are people opposed to, you know, some of these concepts? Uh, and we're not hearing about them nearly as much as we are about, you know, some of the core retail CBDC models. Well, uh, first of all, I agree with everything Simon said uh, very strongly. Uh, <laughs> I read the BIS uh, critique of uh, synthetic uh, central bank digital currency, and I commented on it on Twitter, and all I can remember is that I thought the arguments were just god-awful and uncompelling, so uncompelling that I forgot them all. Uh, But I did discuss it there. I I don't think that there are any good arguments for limiting stablecoin competition to insured banks, uh, and uh, I don't think the arguments for limiting sta- uh, digital currency to central banks are, are even worse. But this gets to the question of rails, and, and uh, back to Simon's arguments. We have, indeed, a pretty thriving stablecoin uh, innovation thing happening. And uh, let it not be forgotten that we would have no discussion of central bank digital currencies if the private sector hadn't given them the idea. Um, What we don't have out there is a full menu of possible stablecoin models because central banks, including the Fed, are limiting access to their rails. That doesn't mean their rails are the only ones that should be uh, on the table. That doesn't mean that stablecoins all have to use those rails. But unless we allow them to, unless we stop limiting access to the Fed settlement rails to banks, we are preventing some desirable experiments from taking place, including the ones that uh, uh, should be least troublesome to those who worry about the risks of stable coins. Those are the very ones that central banks aren't allowing. In fact, the only technological disadvantage stable coin producers have uh, is, is uh, access over banks and over the central bank is access to central bank master accounts. If you give them that, then they have all the technology available that, that anyone could uh, want. And they, if there's a good solution out there, uh, they can find it. But probably there are multiple good solutions. We don't want to have a monotype culture of stable coins. We want to have different kinds that serve special needs. And uh, that's what we can have if we uh, allow it to happen. George, thank you for that. Um, I'm going to have to do the host thing and, and close us out. And we didn't even get to um, the potential for a euro dollar for everybody else, which is my uh, which is my favorite meme when we start to think about the role of the dollar internationally. And would would consumers outside the US want to hold on to something that looks like a US dollar? And would that be in their interest? So I think we're going to have to have you back, both of you guys, to, to unpack that one and, and kind of have some fun with it. But that does, unfortunately, wrap up this week's discussion i am gonna thank you guys so much for joining me it's been an education i've really genuinely enjoyed it where can people find out more about you and uh, what you get up to let's let's start with you george well first of all if you're on twitter you will not be able to avoid hearing stuff from me unless you block me <laughs> or mute me but if you don't do those things and especially if you follow me i do a lot of stuff on there and most of my other writing is on the cato uh, website all of it will be one way or the other the cato center for monetary and financial alternatives 
of which I am the esteemed <laughs> Director Emeritus. Um, in particular, I'll mention Alt-M, which is our online magazine where I frequently publish essays. Thank you, George. And John? Well, if you'd like to follow what we're, we've are we been building at Onero, um, go to ndao.io. That's N-D-A-U dot I-O. It's, uh, it's the world's first adaptive digital currency that uh, is aware of market conditions and has cool stuff like staking wars and all that. And if you want to hear me personally rant and go nuts about various topics on Twitter, uh, including I do a lot of stuff in the NFT space as well. My uh, my name on Twitter is just Pathfinder. Pathfinder. It's good to have you with us. Uh, and Kai? On Twitter at Kai Sheffield and visa.com slash crypto. And you'll find me at SYTaylor on Twitter or at 11FS.com. And we'll find you hopefully listening next time. Um, Thank you so much for listening to our show. Remember to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And please do leave us a review. If you enjoyed this show, it helps others find the show. Stay rare, stay weird, and remember, LFG people.